by your kindness. Um, so let's move to Matthew. <laughs> Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, we did the first 13 verses about two weeks ago. And so we're going to finish the rest of the chapter, which means that is, if you've already opened up, you can see, well, that's a lot to cover. Uh, what that means is I won't cover everything, probably. Uh, I'll, I'll try to move quickly. Uh, and I have a, a couple little sides that I want to talk about, but we'll, we'll do our best to move fast. And I hope that it'll make sense in spite of the speed we're going to move. I do think that you can't understand any part of the Bible unless you try to understand what parts are before and after. Everything makes sense in context. The same way I want you to understand my words in context, God requires us to understand his. And so I want us to just step back for a second and remember what Matthew is all about. Remember, Matthew is all about Jesus is the king. He's the promised king of the Old Testament. He's the king of the Jews who has shown up on earth to his kingdom, and his kingdom has rejected him. Right? And so we saw in the, Matthew had these five big sections, and each one are the rising of his kingdom. He's calling his followers. And then as it's progressed farther in the book, we've had more and more conflict until now we're at this period. It's the very end of Jesus' teaching. He's getting ready to go to the cross. But before he does, he gives us one last sermon in which he says, basically, this conflict is coming to an end because the king is about to make desolate all the kingdoms that oppose him. Right? He said to Israel, your house is desolate. And the Jews, uh, his disciples in the beginning of uh, 24 especially are saying, their house doesn't look desolate. It looks like these kingdoms that are opposing you seem a whole lot stronger than you. Right? Because remember, these king, this is Israel with the temple and with these rich leaders and these rulers. And Jesus is on his way to a cross. And so who is Jesus to tell these kingdoms that they've lost? Who is Jesus to tell them that their kingdom is desolate? And so that has begun in chapters 24 and 25, Jesus teaching on really the end times or the second coming. And the great promise of the end times and the second coming is he says, I will return and set everything right. All the kingdoms opposed to me will be laid to ruin. All sin, all evil, all wickedness will be judged finally and thrown away so that it is out of sight. And all who are faithful and follow me will be given bountiful rewards, full joy, full happiness. And he said, I promise I'm coming back. And as we've seen, there's this sense of, well, is it really going to happen? And Jesus says, you're going to see the world is going to get worse. Your tribulations are going to increase. It's going to feel at times like God's forgotten us here. And he asked us to remember, he said, listen, the heavens and the earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Say, you can take it to the bank. I'm coming back. And so then he starts going through some of these Issues of, if I'm coming back, what are the implications of that? And the first thing that he really started getting on is uh, we need to be ready. We need to live like he's coming back. Right? And he says there's really two groups of people. There's people who are ready and there's people who aren't ready. The people who are ready when the king returns, they will be with the king. 
He compared them to a servant and then to the ten virgins. We saw that parable where there were five virgins who had uh, their lamps ready. And when the, when the groom comes in to the, start the, the wedding ceremony, they get in. They were ready. And the five who weren't don't get in. They want to go fill up their lamps, but it's too late. They are outside of the kingdom. They're outside of the party. Today we're going to see more about who is it that gets in. There's really, let me, um, let me take you back just to really sink this context in. Just a couple verses. I want to read in chapter 24, 24 verses 39 through 42. Just to help us remember where we came. Jesus is talking about his return. 39. All right, so I'm, I'm really starting at the second half of 39. Jesus says, this is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. So when I come back, this is what it's going to be like. He says, there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. The point is that he says, Jesus, Jesus, I'm coming back, and only those who are ready are getting in. And so the central question you have to think is, if I'm one of these two men, how can I know that I'm the man that gets in and not the man who gets thrown out? How can I know that I'm the woman, two women grinding, how can I know that I'm the one that gets in the kingdom instead of the one that gets left out? And so he's going to give us two, one parable and one kind of an illustration, not exactly a parable. It's going to help us understand how we can discern ourselves. Are we the type of people who will get in? Are we the type of people who will get out? And there's, it's going to be a long section, but there's really two basic answers. You are the type of person who gets in if your life is characterized by faithful service to the king. You're the type of person that stays out if you are unwilling to use uh, the gifts you've been entrusted with to serve the king. You're in if you serve. You're out if you don't serve. Another is, he says, you will be in if you receive me, welcome me, took care of me, and the least of these. You were out if you ignored Christ or ignored those people whom he calls his brothers, the least of these. So our two big criteria, do you serve him and do you care for him by caring for his brothers, the least of these? Let's read it together. It's a long passage, and we'll try to unpack it. Still in 24. 25, chapter 25, starting in verse 14. For it is just like a man going on a journey. He called his own slaves, and he turned over his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. Then he went on a journey. Immediately the man who had received five talents went, and he put them to work, and he earned five more. In the same way, the man with two earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and he hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents, and said, Master, you gave me five talents. Look, I've earned five more. 
His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. I love this verse. Share your master's joy. Then the man with two talents also approached. He said, Master, you gave me two talents. Look, I've earned two more. He, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. Then the man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You're a difficult man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went off and hid your talent in the ground. Look, you have what is yours. But his master replied to him, you evil, lazy slave. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers. And when I returned, I would have received my money back with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. For everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And throw this good-for-nothing slave into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes into his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right, the goats on his left, and then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and close you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. But then he will also say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? He will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me either. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray as we study and open this word together that you will give me clarity. I pray that I will be able to explain this passage in a way that opens up your intentions for all of us. I pray that you will open our hearts to understand the passage, our minds to, to grasp what's going on. I pray that especially you will give us the humility to understand our faults and failures, to understand how we were like this third slave or like these people who do not welcome you or the least of these. And I pray that you will give us the grace to repent, 
to turn away from our wickedness and to follow you. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right, let's just walk through the passage together. 25, starting in verse 14. So let's just start with, for it is like a man going on a journey. What does it refer to? Uh, It refers to, I believe, the same thing we just read about in this introduction, this coming of the Son of Man. Remember, this coming of the Son of Man is going to be this time when Jesus himself comes back and there's going to be these two people, one on uh, two guys in the field, one's taken, the other's left, or two women on the threshing floor, one's taken and one's left. And he's saying this event is going to be like the return of this master. So what is it? It's the return of Christ, and it's going to be like this master who goes on this journey. And so then we get into more of the setting, and we see there's really four characters here. And what we need to ask ourselves here is, who do these characters represent? Particularly, do any of these characters represent me? And so right off the bat, I just want to make sure we know, the one character that does not represent any of us in this room is the master in the story, right? That's Christ. He's going on a journey, and he says, and one day I'm going to come back. That's the whole context of what's going on in Matthew 24 and 25. The master is leaving, and one day he's going to come back. Uh, Before we move on to the other three characters, let me just point out something really important to know about this master. The master leaves the servants all of his things, right? His estate he leaves them, his talents, his, his riches, and he gives them responsibilities. So right off the bat, I just want to recognize that Jesus is saying as he leaves, he's leaving us with responsibilities, there's an expectation that he's, when he leaves, there's an expectation that's put onto us. So he's a master that's leaving, but leaving us with responsibilities, expectations. And so let's keep following along, and we're going to see more about those expectations, but we're going to see their, them working out in these three servants. The three servants we see about are three people that are given three different amounts of money, talents. One is given five. One is given two, and one is given one. The one with five talents immediately puts it to work, and he makes five more. The one with two puts it to work, and he makes two more. The one with one talent doesn't do anything. He buries it, and he just leaves it alone. So let's pause for a second and talk about what is talent. In the story, and, and what talents meant back then isn't exactly what we mean by talents. Talents is uh, a currency. It's the amount of money. It's really actually a weight by which they measured currency. So if there was a certain amount of silver, it would be this amount of silver was equal to one talent of silver or one talent of gold. But you would just, in short, uh, shorthand, just refer to it as a talent. I'll give you a talent. Um, so how much currency is it? Um, There's some debate over the exact amount, but a talent is quite a bit. Um, Most people estimate that a talent is about 6,000 denarii. Denarii at that time was one day's wage. So this was about 6,000 days' wages. right? So he's leaving them with a big chunk of money here. Uh, D.A. Carson estimated, he said, roughly, conservatively, it would be like leaving one talent would be about $300,000. He said, so 
the guy who gets one talent is getting over a quarter of a million dollars. The guy who gets two, like a half a million dollars. And the guy who gets five, 1.5. Each of these guys, I'm trying to say, are getting tons of resources. And to me, this actually kind of caught me by surprise, I guess because I always felt sad for this guy that only gets one talent. Right? Like, oh, man, what a measly chunk of change he got. How's he going to do anything with that? And I always think, well, it takes money to make money. He didn't have any money, so what's he going to do? The point that Jesus is saying is, I've given them a ridiculous amount of money. Right? A ridiculous amount. There's no excuses here of saying, I didn't get enough. Everybody got more than enough to accomplish the task they were given. And the task they were given is to steward these resources for the joy of their master. We'll see that more later. But you and I, as we're going to translate this out, we're given talents. And we'll talk about what they are in a second. But right off the bat, I just want to point out that all of us have enough to do what God has asked us to do. Right? There's none of us here who have been shortchanged. So exactly what, how is this going from talents to what is being translated for what we're supposed to do? And I think talents here uh, just refers to anything God has given us to accomplish the purposes he's given us. Right? The purpose that God has given me in my life, or Jeannie, you in your life, he's giving you everything you need and more to accomplish those purposes. I specifically think this could be referring to things like spiritual gifts. Um, let me flip over. If you're not, I'd say everybody here is probably somewhat familiar with the idea of spiritual gifts, but spiritual gifts talk about some of the special uh, makeup, the skills, abilities, characteristics that God has given us. Let me read. There's a couple places you can go to read about them. Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, let me read from Romans 12. Romans 12, chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 6. Paul says, According to the grace given to us, we're all given different gifts. Right? So different amounts of talents or different kinds of talents. We're all given different gifts. Um, but he talks about how we're supposed to use them. If you've been given the gift of prophecy, use it according to the standard of one's faith. If service, then you use it in service. If teaching, then you teach. If exhorting, then you exhort. Giving, you give with generosity. If, you're, if your gift is leading, lead diligently. If it's showing mercy, show mercy cheerfully. The idea here is God has equipped all of us differently. But whatever your gift is... God's expectation is that you use that gift in service to him. If it's teaching, teach in his service. If it's giving, give generously. Whatever gifts, abilities, talents, characteristics, whatever God has specially equipped you with, that is part of how God has designed you in order to serve him. So again, let me just make sure this is clear. Talents in the story is just a term that refers to money. Talents in our lives are anything, whether it be the talent of singing or the gift of mercy or the gift of teaching or singing or whatever gifts, abilities, talents, characteristics, personality traits, whatever God has specially equipped you and I with, those are equipped to us for the purpose of serving him and his kingdom. And the purpose, and the point here is he doesn't give us those gifts to waste. 
He expects us to use them in his service. Uh, let's look at what happens. We already saw that the, the first two guys use their gifts, and the master comes back, and in, in verse, uh, let's see, 19, there's a, sense, there's a sort of a reckoning here. The master's been gone. Uh, it says he's been gone for a long time in 19, after a long time. Let, let me just pause on a long time, just for interest's sake. It, it's, I think it's interesting that some people have suggested that Jesus did not realize that he would be gone for so long, right? He ascended, and now it's been 2,000 years, and people think, see, Jesus was mistaken. And I think this verse shows us that, at least in a parable, he's given hints. I'm talking about long-term patience, enduring. I'm talking about long-term perseverance here. And, and really, the point of this is he wants us to be the long-term kind of people, people who are day in, day out, long-term, persevering in service and use of our gifts. This isn't a flash-in-the-pan kind of service. This is long-term service that he's been asking. He was gone for a long time. The master comes back, and he calls his servants, and the first one had five, and he made five. And look at what the master says to him. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share in your master's joy. The next slave, the next servant here, had two. He made two, and he says the exact same thing. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share in your master's joy. There's a couple implications I think we get right off the bat. What's, why is this the reward, or what's going on here? The first thing I think seems to jump out at me is God is rewarding their faithfulness, not their productiveness, right? The guy who made five and the guy who made two get the same reward. Well done, good and faithful servant, and they both get to share in the joy of their master, in other words, Jesus is saying, I'm looking for faithful, long-term, enduring servants who use whatever they've been given. If you've been given a ton, use a ton. If you've been given a little, use a little. But I'm looking for a long-term, and I'm rewarding you based on your faithfulness, not your productiveness. Another thing that I think is really fun here is that the reward is sharing in their master's joy. We'll talk about this a little bit more, but there's an implication here that they're working for their master's joy. And I'll tell you why I think that later, but these, these two servants went out and did a task to please their master. When their master comes back and is pleased, he says, I want you to share in my pleasure. It's really interesting that as they work for his joy, that brought them ultimately their own joy. Hold on to that. We'll see it more in a second. Let, let me point out one more thing. I, we've asked ourselves, what servant are you like? But notice these first two servants are really the same. They're the servants who faithfully serve and therefore share in the joy of their master. It's this third servant who's so different. Because he didn't put his talents to work. He buried them. And he says to us why he did that in verse 24. The man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You're a difficult man. You reap where you haven't sown, and you gather where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid. I went off and hid your talent in the ground. Look, 
You have what is yours. We try to unpack this excuse. What's he saying? Let me just, I'll read D.A. Carson's explanation of it and then uh, try to summarize that. D.A. Carson says this. Uh, D.A. Carson, by the way, is just a commentator who I thought did a good job. He said, the servant is saying that the master is a grasping, he's exploiting the labor of others. He's putting the servant into invidious position. He says, should he take the risk of trying to increase the one talent and trusted him, he would receive little of the profit. If he failed and lost everything, he would incur the master's wrath. So in a rather spiteful act, he returns to his master what belonged to him, no more and no less. What I think D.A. Carson is saying, I think this is what seems to be implied by the passage, I think it's true, that the servant says, I know the character of you, master, and it's one that if I worked hard for you, I'm not going to get anything out of it. You reap where you haven't sown. In other words, why should I break my back for your wealth? You're the kind of guy who takes what's not yours. I can make money with your money. You're just going to take it all anyway, so what's the point? He says, I didn't want to lose it, but I don't want to do you any special favors either, so I buried it and just take what's yours. It was almost an act of spite. And Jesus really calls him on that. Right? If it's really an act of fear, you would have done the best you could to please the one you're afraid of. But that wasn't what you did. You didn't even go invest. You didn't even do the least you could to please me. What you did was an act of spite. To say, I don't care that you entrusted me with this. I don't have to do what you say. What he reveals, ultimately, is that he's not a servant of the master. He's a servant of himself. If these gifts and talents can gain his wealth, fine. But to gain the master's wealth, that is not what he's looking for. That's not his concern. What's the penalty for not using your talents for the growth and expanse of the master's kingdom? The master replied to him in verse 26, You evil, lazy slave. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, uh, scattered, then you should have deposited. That's what we just read. Then he says, so take the talent, in verse 28, from him and give it to the one who has ten. For everyone who has, more will be given, and uh, he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him and throw this good-for-nothing slave into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's at least two major parts of this penalty, of this punishment. The first one is the talents that he had are taken from him. I take that to mean he's out of chances. He had a chance to serve with what he has been entrusted. And when the master shows up and you haven't served, you're out of chances. It's taken from you. There's no more chance to invest. There's no more chance to make this work for you, for the master. It's gone. What you have is gone. You're out of chances. This this kind of fits with this theme that's been going on with the servants before, the the men who are in the field, the women, one's taken, one's gone, the virgins who try to get into the party afterwards, and now this guy whose talents are taken from him. There's no second chance here for this guy. The resources that he had to please the master are gone. 
You should have done it while I was away because now that I'm here, it's too late. The second of the punishments, the second major thing that seems like is going on is he's cast into outer darkness, into the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And as I pondered this a little bit, I thought this seems almost like the mirror opposite of the reward of the good slaves. The good slaves are gathered into the kingdom, sharing in the joy of the master. This wicked slave is kicked out into the outer darkness, not in joy, but in weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's almost a sense of irony. These two, all three slaves should have, you would assume, have the same idea of their master, that they were working for the master's joy, that they were working for the master's money. And when he came back, if I had five talents and I made five more, the, the master has ten talents now. Right? All three of the masters had the same. But there were two slaves who thought, and what a pleasure. What a joy that I could give the master ten talents when he returns. They worked for his joy. And what they got was their own share in the master's joy. They got joy because the master had joy. But there was another slave who said, I'm working for my joy. And I don't care a rip about the master's joy. And he's cast away from the master who is the source of joy. And is now in a place where there is no joy. There's only weeping. There's only gnashing of teeth. The sense of irony where the men who worked for the joy of their master actually got their own joy. And the man who worked only for his own joy got no joy whatsoever. I think the main idea as we read through this parable is Jesus is re-emphasizing. There is coming a reckoning. The Lord is returning. And there's only going to be two groups of people. The people who are well done, good and faithful servants, share in the joy of the master. Or depart from me, you lazy, wicked slave. You're cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is calling us for the same thing he's been calling throughout the rest of 24 and 25. Be ready. Be the type of person who will share in the master's joy. And now he's actually adding to us, how can you do that? This new piece of information is we do that by not only persevering, right? Not only being ready, but persevering and being ready in a way that is constantly serving the master and his joy, right? We become people who or we look like people who are in the kingdom when our goal is the service of the king. The evidence that we will be in the kingdom is whether or not we are serving the king during his absence. While the king is gone, if you do not serve him, you're showing that you are not a servant of the king. The same way this wicked slave was not a true servant. But while the king is gone, if you are giving of your, the talents you've been entrusted with in service, it's evidence that when he returns, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Share in the joy of the master. Um, there's actually a video that I want to show you. It's, 
as I, as I studied through this passage, this video came to mind, and it's pretty closely connected. I think you'll see how. But it shows a guy, um, this is Francis Chan, he's, he's given an illustration, in which a person claims that fear is what will keep them from giving a real service here. And, and I just, to be frank, find this illustration powerful and just wanted to share it with you. And I think this is a great chance to fit it in. So if it's ready to go, I'd like y'all to watch it and I'll explain it again after. It's kind of blurry just because there's not a high resolution. Uh-oh, there should be volume. To me, and my dad remarried, and my stepmom died in a car accident when I was nine. And my dad got married. Got the team, whatever, you know, because there's so much instability, so much that we don't understand, that we don't know. For me, growing up, it was a, right until my mom died, giving birth to me, and my dad remarried, and my stepmom died in a car accident when I was nine. Then my dad got married again. Then my dad died of cancer when I was 12. So I'm in junior high, my mom's dead, my stepmom's dead, my dad's dead. The only close relatives I had were my, my aunt uncle, George and Sandra. And then when I was in high school, they got in a fight, and my uncle George shot and killed my aunt, and then stuck the gun to his own head. Killed himself. So I'm 16 years old, and this is life to me. Going, man, what's next? Everything seems to be falling apart. And we get a little worried. We get a little scared. And this is what Christians do. You know, they try to serve God. But then things get a little rocky. And things get a little unstable. And so we go, okay, that was nuts. I don't, I don't, I don't want to live like that. Let me, uh, let me hold on. And this is your routine. This is what so many people do. They go, you know what? I'm not going to try anything crazy. I'm just going to sit here. And uh, I'm just going to hold on. And... Uh, this is what you look like. You just go up. And this is what people do. You know, I'm just going to have a nice little family. We're just going to, um, you know, we're just going to keep to ourselves. We're going to live in a gated community. I'm going to homeschool my kids. Make them wear helmets everywhere. I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to let them outside because the sun has bad rays. I'm going to, um, you know, just on and on and on. And you just live your life in the safety. And I don't want to do anything crazy for God. I just... I just want to you know, go to church on Sundays and maybe give like 2% um, and uh, maybe serve and help in the nursery because I feel guilty. And then you do this your whole life and then you go to your greatest prayer like, God, you know what? I would love to die in my sleep and not even feel it and then just go up to heaven. And so you want to die like this. Just in your sleep, boom, right in the middle of the dream, good dream, the dream you go to heaven and you don't even feel it and then suddenly you wake up they stand before the judge and you go. Now, if uh, could you imagine? Could you imagine watching the Olympics? You know, and some girl does that. Just gets up there, starts straddling the thing, and then steps off and goes. What is the judge supposed to do on the card? You see, and to me, I go, man, that's the routine that so many Christians 
not think crazy because I don't want to fall. I, that's a routine that they're going to live. And then one day it's going to be a shock because they're going to step off that balcony and realize they're standing before the judge. They're standing before the judge and you think he's going to look at that routine and go, wow, well done. Well done. You lived the safest life possible. You didn't slip. You didn't fall. See, that's not the life that God's called us to. That's where the majority will head. But I don't want to go where the majority goes. You see the connection? I think... I love that illustration. It just seems poignant to me, but I honestly wonder if Francis Chan was too kind there because it seems to me that Jesus' parable is saying when we hug the balance beam for our entire life and get out and try to do this when the judge gets here, he's going to say, I don't know you. He's going to kick us into outer darkness where there's only weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says if you live your life burying your treasure, burying your talents, not investing them for the joy of the master, then what's the judge going to do? Not say, you squeaked by, but say, I never knew you. That's my fear for myself, for all of us, is that we have been given this immense amount of talents, 1.5 million talents, and we buried them. So let me just ask you, are you hugging the balance beam? Or are you the type of person who has buried the gifts God has given you to serve his kingdom and to bring him joy? The same theme is what's going on really in our next section here. The Son of Man comes, and he's doing the same thing as he's been doing all along. He's dividing us into two, I say all along, I mean chapter 24 and chapter 25. He's dividing into these two groups. This time, the Son of Man is here in all of his glory. The angels are with him. And that all of the nations now are gathered before him, and he separates all the nations, everybody, into two groups, sheep and goats. Sheep on his right, the goats on his left, and then to the sheep, he says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared from you before the foundation of the world. If you're a goat, I'm going to skip this next part and go on to what he says to the goats. He will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire. Prepared for the devil and his angels. There's two groups of people. Been two kinds of these virgins, the ones who were prepared and the ones who weren't. Two kinds of slaves, two kinds of three servants, but there were only two kinds. The good and faithful who share in the joy and the ones who were cast into outer darkness. And now there are two kinds of people, sheep and goats. When the Lord returns, there's only two categories. And the question is, which category will you be in? As we've been reading, will you be the type of person that was ready, that was prepared, that endured, that persevered, that served with the talents you were given? And now we have one more criteria that he gives us to judge ourselves, to see if we're the type of people who were ready. 
He tells us. How, what is it? What's the criteria to see if I get in? He says, you get in because when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you took me in. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you took care of me. When I was in prison, you visited me. Or if you're kicked out, it's because of all of those in reverse. You did not. You did not feed me when I was hungry. You did not give me something to drink, and so on. In other words, he says the test to see whether you get into the kingdom of God is whether or not you receive the king in his humility and most desperate position. When the king was in his lowly state, did you receive him then? Did you care for him then? We get into the kingdom by receiving the king. The problem is, the people say, uh, but we don't remember seeing you in this lowly state. We don't remember seeing you when you were hungry or in prison or you were thirsty. We don't, this isn't ringing a bell with us. When did we either do this and get in or not do it to get out? The king says, when you, uh, in, in, in 37, the righteous answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and close you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, I assure you, whenever you did it for the least of these my brothers of mine, you did it for me. Then he will also say to those on the left, depart from me. Well, we've already read that part, right? So when do we see Jesus this way? It's when we see the least of his brothers, the least of these who are his brothers, and we take care of them. So who are the least of these? I think it's important for us to identify those people so we can start serving them. There is a big group of people, um, many scholars who just think it's anybody who is in a lowly position, anybody who's in, anybody who's in prison, anybody who's weak, anybody who's hungry or thirsty. Um, I, I do think the Bible in general tells us to watch out for the, the weak, anybody who's weak to help. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. And the reason is because he says it's a specific group of the least of these. It's the ones who I call my brothers. Right, The least of these who are my brothers, who are in my family, um, that seems to limit the group to people who are believers. I'll read uh, again from D.A. Carson. He says, The fate of the nations is decided on how they respond to Jesus' followers, who, whether missionaries or not, are charged with the spreading of the gospel and do so in the face of hunger, thirst, illness, and imprisonment. Jesus identifies himself with the fate of his followers and makes compassion for them equivalent to compassion for himself. In other words, I believe what Jesus is saying is if you cannot care for the church... You do not care for the church's groom or the church's king. If you do not care for the people in our body who are weak and suffering and imprisoned and hungry and thirsty, if, if that does not move you to action and compassion for them, 
then you cannot say that you love the king that they're serving and suffering for. On the flip side, when you are moved for them, it shows that you are moved because of who their king is. And so what I'd like to do for a second is to take a little excursus, a little confession of how I am struggling with learning to do this. And I think that our church is in a position where we need to struggle to learn to do this. And I just want to try to think out loud with you for a little bit. Uh, off, off the bat, I just want to say our church is one of the most benevolent giving churches that I know of. And we just, it was two weeks ago, Jeffrey presented our budget. 22% of it was given to missions. Um, and then that doesn't include what always, the end of the year, whenever there is an overage, there's more given to that. Our church is very, very giving. And so, in a sense, I believe that we're accomplishing this. But as I've been here at Rayford Road and seen the world and how giving works, I begin to question my heart and I believe sometimes the wisdom of how we give. And we talked about this a little bit in the deacons meeting. Uh, Jesus wants us to give kindly, freely, benevolently, but not unwisely. Let me read to you another passage from Paul. This is out of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 through 16. Uh, I'll just flip over there. 1 Timothy. Chapter 5. Timothy's talking about benevolence, about giving. Or this is Paul to Timothy. He says, No widow should be placed on the official support list unless she's at least 60 years old and has been the wife of one husband and is well known for good works. That is, if she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. Now pause here for a second. He says, first off, you're, when you're giving to widows, the fact that they are in your body, that they have proven themselves as ministering spirits in your body, that counts for something. That matters. And don't give, he says, to... I just, I just skipped my place there. He says, refuse to enroll younger widows. For when they're drawn away from Christ by desire, they'll want to marry, and they will therefore receive their condemnation because they'll renounce the original pledge. At the same time, they'll become idle, go from house to house. Not only will they be idle, but gossips and busybodies, saying things they shouldn't say. Therefore, I want younger women to marry, to have children, to manage households, to give the adversary no opportunity to accuse us. For some have already turned away to follow Satan. If any believing woman has widows in her family, she should help them, and the church should not be burdened so that it could help those who are genuinely widows. In other words, it seems to me that Paul is saying there is a way to help that hurts. There's a way to try to be kind that actually undercuts 
the person you're trying to help. There's a way to become an enabler, a, a person who you feel good about your giving, but your giving is actually doing damage in the giving. You're creating idleness in people. You're creating busybodies. You're preventing people from taking the responsibility they need to mature. And so somehow what we have to do as Christians is balance the word of God that tells us to be actively looking for hungry and thirsty and needy, imprisoned people without clothes that are in his body, and we give freely and benevolently and happily. But Paul's words, simultaneously, also the words of God, that says, don't do it in a way that undercuts. Don't do it in a way that hurts. Tommy and Nancy, I've actually thought about y'all a lot this week because Tommy has said over and over, and I've kind of learned by experience from being here, that in Honduras, you've learned that you can't, you can't give freely in a way because it can create a dependence that isn't healthy. You have to, uh, well, one is I think y'all are still learning to give, right? How to give wisely. And I know... I didn't mean to get off on a tangent here, but I know that George is trying to do that by helping people create jobs for themselves, teaching them not to be idle. I think our church, my point here is our church has to learn to do that personally as persons, but also corporately. And so just so you know, I wanted to tell you that that's one of the things our deacons talked about in deacons meeting tonight, that we want to learn to be the type of people who are benevolent and giving and kind and looking for the members of our body who are suffering and how can we come along and meet those needs. And we want to simultaneously be people who are wise, people who can help without hurting, people who can show the love of God in a way that doesn't create bad character, that doesn't undercut the processes in which God is using to bring maturity. Uh, One specific example here is when he says, These widows should first be going to their families before burdening the church as a way to strengthen this family. We don't want to undercut those kind of processes. I bring that up specifically because I would like to ask you guys to pray for us as a church and as deacons as we think through giving. I this is this is my first time ever sitting in a place where I've saw benevolence ministry working over the last about two and a half years, three years, I've seen this in a way that has completely caught me off guard. Kathy Roden gets at least one, usually more than one person a day coming to ask for money, for food or for light bills to be paid or rent to be paid. Every single day, that is, a, that is in the face of our church, how are we going to respond to all of the needs that people are saying they have and coming to us? Some people we find out are just bold-faced lying to us. Some people aren't. Some people are coming with kids and they don't know what to do. And even still, we have to have wisdom. Um, as we talked about in, in deacons meeting, I realized that though I'm new to this game, I don't, not all the deacons are, there's a lot of wisdom in this church already. Um, but as we think through this as a body and as a group, I pray, I'm just asking you to pray for us in this specific area. How can we be the kind of people who get into the kingdom because we care for the people of the kingdom without being people who help in a way that hurts? And I just want to ask you to pray for us. So let me, let me try to wrap this up. Let me try to close this 
this passage together, and really this whole fifth section. Jesus has said that he is coming back. And when he comes back, there's only two groups of people. People in the kingdom, people outside of the kingdom. And I think the central question he wants you and I to ask is, what kind of person are you? Are you a person who lives ready? Are you a person who is enduring the persecution? Um, Not just the persecution, but the hardships of this life, of which our church is drinking a full cup of them right now. Are you a person who's working with all of your talents, all of your gifts and abilities to serve the king for the increase of his joy? Are you the type of person who loves the church, who loves his body, goes to the hospital when others in, a, in our body are sick? <laughs> you guys have done a great job that when you find out your pastor and his wife are sick, you bring them food. Are you the type of person that looks at the needs, weaknesses of the body, and you try to meet those needs? Jesus says, these are the marks of the person who will enter my kingdom when I return. So be ready. Take account now. If you have looked at yourself, you've taken account and you say, I'm not there. I'm not sure I'm ready. I sure don't feel like I've used all my talents and all my gifts. I sure don't think that I've loved his body well, sufficiently. At this point, I think what you need to do is step back into the whole book of Matthew. Jesus has told us, beginning in chapter 8, that that's the exact place you need to be. You need to recognize, I need to be recreated. Jesus says, I didn't come for the healthy. I didn't come for the perfect servants. I didn't come for the perfect lovers of the body. I came for the people who need to be changed, that need to be made new. Confess your sins. Ask God to make you a person that uses your talents. Ask him to show you how you can use your gifts and make you a person that serves. Ask him to show you maybe just one person in this body who you could love, pray for daily. Find ways to minister to them in a way that helps them and not hurts them. I don't believe that any of us will look at these tests and feel like we've accomplished it all. I believe that we'll all recognize we have room to grow. And that's why it's really important for us to read the whole book of Matthew and the whole Bible. And remember that Jesus says, that's why I came. It's because I know you need me to help you do what I've called you to do. Let me pray and the music team can lead us in response.